Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Thanks, Will. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to to be with you. Um, I'm thinking... uh, Five to eight heading out. Is that what's happening? Yep, they know they know the drill. That's good. Um, I haven't met you. My name's Jono. Um, looking around the room, I think I have met met you all. Um, but it's uh, it's it's always great to come across. Gavin and I are doing a swap this morning, helping each other out with the preaching, and uh, it's great to open up God's Word together. Um, will you pray with me as we uh, come to reflect on on what may be a, a familiar part of God's Word, but pray that we would uh, we would take to heart what is being taught here. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask now that you give us insight and understanding that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would respond in faith and we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you're uh, in the habit of, um, of watching the news or listening on the radio to the news or consuming the news in some way um, through, uh, through a, an app or device, uh, one thing you would notice is that often the news that we consume, that we hear, that we listen to, is bad news. Uh, I mean, of course, there'll be the, the fluffy animal story at the sort of the end of the, the bulletin or maybe a good news sports story, but, but often the news that we, that we hear of, that we read about, is bad news. You know, things like conflict and disasters and corruption and violence and suffering and death and, well, we could go on and really depress ourselves with all the things that constantly get reported to us. Because this world is actually a bad place where bad things happen and apparently for whatever reason it's something that we want to know about through the news. Um, but of course it's not just out there in kind of news land, it's, it, it, this is, it's the world that we live in and so the same stuff happens to us. We encounter the same things in our lives, hopefully on a less dramatic scale, but we still face sickness and conflict and fear and crime and disaster. We live in the same fallen world. Now, sometimes when people face or experience these things, they, they can cry out, where is God? Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this bad thing to happen? For some people, that, that question is, well, it's, it, it comes out of a real, a real deep grief and, and angst personally. Where is God? 
For others, though, it can be, well, it, the existence of evil raises more of a philosophical question about the existence of God. And it's, a, it's an age-old conundrum that many people have kind of wrestled with and debated and tossed around. If, if God is all good and if God is all powerful, well, why does evil exist? In fact, the existence of evil shows, according to this argument, that either God is not all-powerful, he's not able to do anything about evil, or he's not all-good, he doesn't want to do, any, uh, do anything about evil. So how can the all-powerful, all-good God allow evil to exist? It's a great, the great uh, philosophical problem of evil, and those of you who have a philosophy bent can you know, debate it over morning tea later on. But the thing is that Jesus wasn't so much interested in philosophical arguments. Jesus didn't sit back in his ivory tower in heaven and hypothesize about the existence of evil and the threat that it may or may not pose to God's existence or his goodness or his power. Jesus didn't do that. No, Jesus stepped into this broken, decaying world full of the stuff that we hear about on the news constantly. Jesus came into this world, he walked amongst it, he faced it and he confronted it. And we see that in this uh, passage before us this morning, in the situations that Jesus faced. Jesus enters into and confronts this world of decay. Firstly, we read of him facing a hostile environment, a wild storm at sea. We read in verse 23, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Now, uh, Back in verse 18, you would have seen last week that uh, Jesus had instructed his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. And well, after being uh, taught about the nature of discipleship, here they, they carry out his instructions. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. But then the problem presents itself. Verse 24 says, Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, apparently the Sea of Galilee, where this was happening, was, was renowned for a sudden and severe storms. And, well, given that a number of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, that was their, their trade, they would have known what they were doing. And yet, this is an unusually serious and dire situation. The waves are, are sweeping over the boat. They're in danger of being completely swamped. This could well have been the end for them. You know, you can imagine the, the Galilean news headlines. 12 die at sea while master's, master sleeps. Because incredibly, that's what Jesus was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus was sleeping. It's an interesting little comment that's just included in there. Jesus was sleeping. Uh, no doubt Jesus was exhausted from dealing with the, the crowds. But I think also it's a, it's a little reminder of Jesus' humanity. He was sleeping. He, he slept. Um, just as, a, as an aside from the passage, it's, it's interesting what the Bible says about sleep. I don't know if it's something that you've ever considered, but it's, uh, the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about sleep. Uh, for example, sleep reminds us and expresses our limitation as creatures in contrast to God's sovereignty as the Creator. I mean, think about it. When we sleep, we become inactive, that the world carries on without us. We, we can't shape or change or control 
anything about the world around us while we sleep. And yet God, the scriptures tell us, never sleeps. He never sleeps or slumbers. He's always completely and continually in control. Um, there's a great little book called uh, Thank God for Bedtime. I don't know if anyone's read it. Um, I've read it, which means that it is quite a little book because I've read it. Um, and I, if you want to think about uh, and read more about what the Bible says about sleep, I'd commend it to you. It's, it's, it's quite interesting and it's, it's uh, quite practical too. If sleep is something that you wrestle with, or even if it's not. Um, there's just a little uh, bonus book review on the side as we go through. But Jesus was sleeping. He was seemingly not controlling this situation. And the disciples went and woke him. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Uh, Literally in in the original, what they say is simply three words. Lord, save. We're perishing. It's a desperate situation. And there's, there's some recognition that Jesus, well, he's able to do something to help in this situation. The disciples, no doubt, would have seen him do other miraculous things and, and they reach out to him in some way to, Jesus, save us. Uh, Jesus' reply is curious. Verse 26, he replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? On the surface, it seems a kind of strange question. It would have been fairly obvious why they're afraid. I mean, they're, they're in a furious storm. They're in grave danger. But even though they, things are seemingly out of control, if, well, if they knew and understood and believed who Jesus is, they would not have been so afraid. Uh, yes, they have faith. I mean, they, they cry out to Jesus to save them. But it's a, it's a little faith that, that doesn't yet fully see and believe who Jesus is. Well, as I said, we're not sure what they were thinking Jesus may do, but uh, we read on, verse 26, then he got up, rebuked the... Sorry, where are we? Um, no, come back. He got up, rebuked the wind, winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Jesus is in control. He speaks and nature obeys. I mean, that, that is power. That's control. Try it out sometime. You know, in the middle of a storm, go outside and, and, and stand and say, quiet, be still, see what happens. Maybe do it when no one else is watching. That might be a good idea. Um, that's power. That's, that's control. Went for a run last week in the rain, and I don't mind running in the rain. It's, it's all right. But I thought, look, I'll, I'll try this out. Stop raining. Nothing happened. I just, I just got wet. This is incredible power and control that Jesus has. I mean, I wish I had that consistent control over my dog. Quiet, be still. That'd be, that'd be really good. Sometimes it happens when there's nothing better to do for him. But, but Jesus has comp- control over nature. Now imagine you were there in the boat. How would you respond? You might sing and shout and do a little happy dance, rejoice that you you're saved. You might collapse in a, in a relieved heap, just grateful to be alive. I expect there would have been a variety of responses. Matthew highlights this response for us, verse 26. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now this, um, this incident is recorded in, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel as well. 
Uh, in Mark's gospel, he, it's, he says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this, even the wind and the waves obey him. Luke's account, he says, in fear and amazement, they ask each other, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Amazed, terrified, fearful, overawed. Why? Well, who has control over the wind and the waves? If you have your Old Testament glasses on, you, as, as they would have understood from their, the Scriptures, the answer is clear and obvious. The Lord God has control over the wind and the waves. Let me give you just a little snippet from a few passages. Psalm 65 verse 7 says, God is the one who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 104 verse 7, at your, But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalm 29 verse 3, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. In Psalm 89 verse 9, You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. The Bible presents um, often that the sea as a place of, that represents evil and chaos and darkness and, and hostility to God. But God is the one who controls the wind and the waves. Which is why this incident is so terrifying to the disciples. I mean, they were, sure, they were, they were scared in the storm. But then they're terrified, they're amazed as they start to realize that, that God is standing before them in the boat. What kind of man is this, they ask? Well, he's a man who sleeps like any other man, but he's a man who controls the wind and the waves with the power of God. So Jesus steps into this world, this world of, of destruction, of disaster, of death, he confronts it and he controls it. Next, we read that Jesus faced hostile powers. He confronted these two demon-possessed men. Now, it's probably worth saying something about demon possession because uh, this, this may seem a little strange to us. Um, it, it may be foreign to us, and, and I suspect that, uh, that one of the, the devil's key strategies in, in modern Western cultures is actually to, to fly under the radar. Uh, if people are unaware of his influence uh, or even unaware of his existence, then it's easy for the, him to lead people astray in rejecting all things spiritual, including God. I suspect that's one of the evil one's strategies. But this is not the case in, in many cultures throughout the world. Um, the existence and influence of evil spirits is more obvious in, in some places, as missionaries will often testify. Uh, and thirdly, it may be that there was a kind of particularly heightened um, effort of a focused effort of the devil during the, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, which may account for the, the many references to demons and demon possession in the, in the Gospels compared to other parts of the Scriptures. But fourthly and, and most importantly, we need to remember and grasp that Jesus has authority over demons, over the devil. And if our trust is in him, then they're not something for us to fear. So here in Matthew 8, Jesus is confronted by these two demon-possessed men. Now, Jesus has encountered demons uh, uh, and other evil spirits earlier. We read back in verse 16 of chapter 8 that he, he drove out the spirits with a word. 
But this incident takes things to a, a kind of another level. These men were uncontrollably possessed by evil. And Matthew includes the detail there in verse 28 that they were coming from the tombs. They dwelt among the dead. And he says that they were so violent that no one could pass that way. Everyone avoided these men. And yet Jesus didn't. Jesus came to them and he confronted the demons. And what the demons say to him is is quite revealing. Verse 29, they say, What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Notice the demons knew who Jesus is. They, they call him the Son of God. And they know what he's come to do to, to destroy evil, including them. And we, we read Revelation, verse, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, this, this picture of judgment which says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus came to defeat evil powers. He triumphed over them by the cross and in the end he will overthrow evil completely. They know this and they know that the appointed time of judgment has, has not yet come but they also know that Jesus won't tolerate their possession of this, these two men. And so we're told there in verse 30, some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Now we might wonder what's, what's going on with the pigs. Uh, but first of all, notice, notice Jesus' complete authority. He says, go. And there's no, there's no question about it. These, these uncontrollably violent men whom everyone avoided, they're saved. The, the demons leave the men instantly. Jesus is in complete control and he brings salvation. Well, what is with the pigs? We might ask, well, you know, what did the pigs do to deserve to die? We might ask, what about the people who own the pigs? I mean, have they they just lost their livelihood? We might read that and think, gee, this sounds a bit rough. Uh, the first thing I think to say is that, is to, that this emphasizes the magnitude, the scale of, of the miracle. That it says that the herd of the pigs was large and it says that the whole herd was, was possessed. That, that is, these men, these two men were possessed by many demons, but Jesus had complete supreme authority over them. Secondly, according to Jewish law, Pigs were unclean animals. You might remember that from our series in Leviticus. And ceremonial uncleanness was symbolic of sin, of death. I mean, the very presence of these pigs here in what was supposed to be a Jewish area is, well, it's concerning at least. But Jesus comes into this this world under the shadow of demons and death and sin and uncleanness he confronts it and he deals decisively with it. And so I think what we have here, this picture of the, the demons from in the men who lived in the tomb, the place of the dead, that the demons enter the unclean animals and meet their death in the sea, this place of destruction and chaos and, and death. The whole thing is, this, is a powerful display of judgment. 
And I think before we feel too sorry for the, uh, the people who own the pigs, we, we, also, we should notice their response. Verse 33, we read, Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they fell down and worshipped and said, Thank you for saving these... No, hang on, they didn't say that, did they? When they saw him, they pleaded with him, for the, uh, with him to leave their region. Notice what the herdsmen told the people in the town. They reported all this and and Matthew includes the detail, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It's like that's being sort of foregrounded for them. These men that have been freed from their unimaginable suffering. But how do the people of the whole town respond? They, They beg Jesus to go away from them, just as the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. One commentator put it like this, the the loss of the herd becomes a way of exposing the real values of the people in the vicinity. They prefer pigs to persons, swine to the saviour. But what does this teach us? It teaches us that Jesus has entered this broken world under the shadow of death, that he faced disaster, he faced destruction, he faced demons, he He faced death and he overcame it. And this is our world. Our world that's plagued by all sorts of brokenness. Satan is at work deceiving people, leading them away from God. We face disasters, disease, sickness. And over us all hangs the shadow of death. We live in a broken, decaying world. And this may not be the kind of happy, upbeat story that we like to hear but it's the reality of the world that we live in and we need to face that. We need to realise that, that this world is not how God created this world to be. Genesis 2 paints us this, this picture of this idyllic world in the life in the Garden of Eden with God and humanity and creation living in harmony. But that reality has been shattered by the rebellion of Genesis 3 of humanity rebelling against God. And that rebellion has been the state of our world ever since. Our world is subject to death, disaster and the devil. We live outside of Eden. We need to understand that so that we understand what Jesus has done, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to this world outside of Eden and he has control over this world, control over nature. He spoke and it was completely calm. Control over evil. When he met the demon-possessed men, there's no question of who's in charge. Jesus is in complete control. And he cares. He's not just all-powerful. He's also all-good. As he steps into this world of hostility and death, does, does he care for those living under the shadow of death? Yes. He saved the, the disciples from the, the storm. He saved the demon-possessed men. And he went on ultimately to face death himself in order to save for eternity all who trust in him. He's able to save people and he does save people. He delivers them from the shadow of death, ultimately in the kingdom of heaven. Which leads us with the question, how do we respond to Jesus? Some people rejected him, the the townsfolk or the demon-possessed men. Despite seeing the salvation, despite seeing the obvious power and authority that Jesus has, they just want Jesus to go away. 
to leave them alone. Some reject Jesus. Maybe that's been you. If so, I plead with you to turn back to Jesus. Don't turn your back on Jesus. The one who has come and faced this broken world to bring salvation. Don't reject him. Put your faith in him. Because that's the right response. In the face of disaster, in the face of demons, even in the face of death, Jesus says, don't fear, have faith. The disciples in the boat, he calls on them not to fear but, and gently corrects their, their little faith. Their right, the right response to Jesus is faith. Now, I think faith is something that is, is often misunderstood and people have different ideas about it. So let me just say a few things about faith. Firstly, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Sometimes people think, well, that, that's what faith is. I mean, when you, when you can't know something, well, you just kind of, that's where faith comes in. You, you, you just leap into the dark and have faith. Faith is seen as the, the opposite of reason. You know, this seems reasonable, but I'm going to have faith and do that. That's not what faith is. Faith is, secondly, it's simply trust. It, it's reliance, it's dependence. That's what, that's what the word means. So to have faith in something is to trust it, to rely upon it, to depend upon it. It's actually not a, a particularly religious word. It just means trust, rely, de- depend. At the moment, you all have faith in your chairs. You are trusting that your chairs will hold you up off the floor. Uh, when you sat down in that chair, was that blind faith? No, that was reasonable faith. You've, every other time you've sat on those chairs, they've held you up. And so you, your decision to trust, to have faith in your chair was a, a reasonable decision. Faith is simply trust, reliance, depending. Thirdly, faith always has an object and the object is actually more important than the, than the faith. So you don't just have faith, you have faith in something. In the case of sitting in a chair, it's that your faith is in the chair. Uh, it, it is important that you exercise your faith and trust and sit on the chair, otherwise the chair is not going to hold you up. But it's not your faith that holds you up, it's the chair that holds you up. If you're not sure about that, try sitting on your faith without the chair and see how you go. So, so faith always has an object. We trust something, we trust someone. And fourthly, whether our faith is rational or reasonable, well, it depends on the object of the faith. Is it rational, is it reasonable to have faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus? Well, well, that really depends on whether Jesus is trustworthy or faithful. If he is, well, trusting him is not a leap in the dark, it's a reasonable thing to do. It's rational faith. Fifthly, everyone has faith in something. Uh, you either have faith, you have trust that Jesus is the Son of God, or you have faith, trust that he's not the Son of God. Either position involves faith, involves trust. It may be rational, reasonable, it may be based on good evidence, good reasoning, or it may be irrational, unreasonable, without any thought to whether or not it's a reasonable position to hold. But everyone has faith, everyone trusts something. So what about you? Who or what do you trust? Do you trust that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if you do then he can save you. Jesus brings eternal salvation to all who trust him. Not long after these events of Matthew 8, as Jesus hung 
dying on the cross, the religious leaders called out to him and they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. The irony is that in that very act of not saving himself, uh, of giving his life, of yielding himself to death, in that very act he did save others. You and me, if we trust him. He saved us by taking our sin and its punishment upon himself, giving us his righteous standing before God. Jesus has stepped into this world of disasters, of demons, of death, and at the appointed time, defeated them and brought salvation to all who trust him. Maybe it's perhaps obvious to say it, but it's important to say he didn't take it all away immediately. Uh, in Matthew 8, we read he calmed one storm, he healed two demon-possessed men, he, he performed many miracles, but he didn't immediately reverse the whole nature of this world that we live in. The horrors of this world remain for now. But he does give us grounds for profound and certain hope. Because in these miracles, Jesus has demonstrated something of the, of the new world that he is bringing. And by his death and resurrection, that one great act of reversal, by that the kingdom of God has begun and he will reverse the decay of the world. Which means for us now that we can face this world with our faith in Jesus. As we, we suffer in this world, it, it, that doesn't undermine our faith because the all-powerful, all-good Jesus has dealt with evil, opening up the way to his kingdom. And one day when he returns, he will bring the new heaven and the new earth. Until that day, he calls on us like he calls on his disciples, living in this broken world, living under the shadow of death, not to be afraid, but to put our faith in him. And we can do that knowing that we're forgiven before God, that he's with us by his spirit, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus that he has defeated death and so we don't need to fear because he's come and we can trust, put our faith in him. Praise God.